From the moment Jesus walks into Jerusalem riding on a donkey at what we refer to as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, to the time he rises from the grave, is about 0.06% of his life. Not a lot of time. But if you read through the Gospels, that one week encompasses 33% of the Gospel narrative. It's one-third of the story that the Gospel writers tell. If you put it all together, this one week changed the world. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John felt compelled to tell us about it from a lot of different angles in a lot of different ways to recount that Week And specifically, these 96 hours, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, of that week changed the world. See, there's a way that the world works. If you watched the Academy Awards um, last week, you know this way. Because here's what it looks like. If you're beautiful, if you're wealthy, if you're famous, then... People cater to your every need, right? I mean, they put out literally a red carpet for you. I mean, any of you ever had that happen? I haven't, right? At least not in reality, some, you know, for fun, but Kelly does that for me when I get home from work, you know? It's like, oh, hey, that's great, wonderful. There's a way that the world works. The more powerful you are, the more prominent you are, the wealthier you are, the more people you have to cater to your every need. I read an article a while back about the way that celebrities use their assistants. It's pretty interesting. Um, Christian Bale has an assistant who, as he walks down that red carpet, who actually smells his armpits to see if he has B.O. I don't know what he does about it if he does, but he's like, no, you're good. You're good. So they're taking auditions for that if you want to sign up, you know? Um, It's in the lobby after the service. Um, Madonna has an assistant who wakes up, um, uh, she wakes them up about every hour as she's sleeping, six times during the night in order to get her a cold glass of water. My kids tried doing that with me too. I don't (laughs) know. She also has somebody who goes into the restrooms before her with um, Lysol and disinfectant and wipes them down from top to bottom before she goes to use the restroom. Pretty impressive. Mariah Carey, who is a notorious diva, has somebody who holds her drink for her while she drinks out of the straw. She has somebody who washes her hair for her. She has somebody who walks in front of her so that she doesn't trip while she's wearing her high heels. It's pretty impressive. 
CeeLo Green has somebody in his entourage who is responsible for dabbing the sweat off of his brow. Can you imagine being that dude? Where do you sign up for that? Or Prince Charles. Prince Charles has somebody who irons his shoelaces before he puts them into his shoes, and it shows. It shows. He also has somebody, and this is something I actually like, he has somebody who gets him undressed after his day and puts him in his PJs before he goes to bed. So Prince Charles just walks in, falls down on his bed, somebody takes all of his clothes off, puts his PJs on. All right, let's be honest, who wouldn't want that, okay? Let's be honest, who wouldn't want that? Put your hands down, put your hands down. Or you had Frank Sinatra, who had a butler, who washed his boxers, his underwear, by hand and followed him around to straighten out his toupee in case it got off. There's a way that the world works. The more powerful you are, the more money you have, the more prominence you garner in life, the more people you have to serve you. The more people you have to cater to your every need, to make sure that everything goes well for you. It's part of the wiring of our world. In fact, during Jesus' day, there's a tradition that rabbis would try to teach uh, their apprentices or their disciples how to live in the way of Torah. And there were 48 different things that you would do in order to train to live in the way of Torah. One of those things was to be of, servant, to, to be of service to a rabbi. So you would get dinner ready. You would um, sometimes wash the feet of the rabbi. These were all ways of being a personal attendant for somebody who is really, really important. It's the way that the world worked. Until Jesus flipped everything on its head. John chapter 13. If you have your Bible open there with me, as we look at the Thursday that changed the world. Because there's a way that the world worked and Jesus flips all of that on its head and in one meal gives his disciples a picture of what you are called to do when you have the power, what you're called to do when you have the influence, what you're invited to do when you have the strength. Do you use it to prop yourself up or do you use it to propel others forward? This, friends, was a revolutionary meal. Verse 1 of chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or he loved them to the uttermost. It's, it's not a word that signifies just a time period, but, but a way that you lavish love that it fills up uh, capacity, teleos in the Greek, to fulfill, to finish, and Jesus takes it all the way. See, the whole life of Jesus, the, the Trinitarian Godhead, is about love from the beginning of creation to the very end. It's about relationship. In Genesis chapter 1, it's God with his creation. In Revelation 22, it's God with his creation motivated the entire time by love for people like you and people like me. And John tells us that what Jesus is doing is he's painting them a picture 
When he wants to tell them what he's like, he doesn't give them a 12-point sermon. He gives them a meal. He doesn't just give them didactic theological truth. He gives them a sacrificial, symbolic act that changes it all. In the 16th century, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote a book entitled The Prince. It was revolutionary in that it unpacked what you do with power. And his proposition, and I quote, was, it's much safer to be feared than it is to be loved. Well, Michael Scott in the office flipped that around a little bit and said, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. I think Jesus would agree far more with Michael Scott than he would with Niccolo Machiavelli. <laughs> this act of love. I'm not saying I want you to, I want you to be afraid of me, but, but I want you to receive the love that I have from you. From beginning to the end, that's what he's about. And so this is the way that he lives that out. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God, and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. Everybody that writes about the Gospel of John says that it's divided in two parts. You have chapters 1 through 12 as part 1, chapters 12 through 21 as a shorter part 2. Chapter 1 begins with the Word becoming what? Flesh and dwelling among us. It, it begins with God shedding himself of all of the benefits of being God. Part two begins in the exact same way, with Jesus the Messiah approaching a, probably a mat with his friends sitting around it, eating a Passover meal together, and shedding his outer garments to bend down and to serve his friends. See, typically, the father or the master of the ceremony would have, at this point in the meal, washed his his disciples or the people who were sitting with him at the meal, sharing the meal with him, he would have gone around and washed their hands. But Jesus flips it all on its head. And he gives them a new picture, a new picture of what you do when you've got the power. And what's really at stake here is not just the way of Jesus, but the person of Jesus. Because what you're seeing is not just something that Jesus does. You are seeing who Jesus is. And so he washes his disciples' feet, much to their chagrin, as we'll see in a moment, and to their awe that the God of the universe bows down before them. And then at the end of it, he says this. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, let's say this together, church, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus says, okay, you want to be blessed, and everybody does. We have this human longing 
to be known, to be loved, to have the favor of God poured out on us, which is what blessing is. And he goes, okay, you want that? Well, then do this. See, there's a way that the world used to work. If you have the power, use it to push others down. If you have the power, get the entourage. Have them serve you. Beat your chest. Go that way. And Jesus says, how's that working out for you? There's a better way. And what he wants to teach you and and me this morning and his followers during that meal, that evening, is that self-giving, this this modeled way of Jesus, is the pathway to abundant blessing. When we give ourselves away, see, Jesus is illustrating with a meal what he told us last week, and that's in order to find out what it means to really, truly live, you've got to die. You can't try to to garner everything for yourself and expect that you're going to find sustenance and joy in life. Actually, joy is found when you shed the outer layer, get down on your hands and knees, and serve the people around you. That's the way true life is found. It's really interesting. If I were Jesus, I'm, I don't know what I would have done. Because later on in this meal, in Luke chapter 22, Luke records what the disciples say. Catch this. Here's what he said. they say. A dispute arose among the disciples to see which of them would be the greatest. I mean, can you imagine Jesus has washed his disciples' feet down on his hands and his knees with a towel, a water basin, and he goes, okay, now the servant's not greater than his master. Love each other. Do this. You're blessed if you do this. And then a few minutes later, they're going, which one of you thinks you think is going to be the greatest? <laughs> I mean, Jesus was probably like, Father, take me now. Like, this is, I've... I've suffered enough. I mean, the cross is one thing, but these guys are a whole nother thing, right? Like, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And Jesus said to them, you morons. No, he didn't. That's me. I'm projecting, okay? Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. There's a way that the world worked. When you had the power, you kept people under your thumb. And those who exercise authority over them, they call themselves benefactors. They're the ones that garner all the attention. But you, you are not to be like that. There's a way that the world worked, but there's a new way. There's a new day. There's a new invitation to what we do with strength and what we do with power. You should not be like them. The greatest among you instead should be the servant. They should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. In the 20th century, there was a missionary by the name of Wilfred Grendfall. And he was a missionary to Newfoundland and sort of up in the northeast. And somebody gave him a brand new motorboat in order to bring medical aid to people who were sort of off in the outskirts. And one evening he got summoned that there was somebody who needed his help. And he got in this brand new motorboat and he was dark. And so he'd been on this route a number of times, but he's followed the compass in order to get to the place that he needed to arrive at. 
But within a few minutes of riding in this little motorboat, he found himself in the middle of the vast open sea, his tiny boat being hit by a torrent of waves, and he eventually made his way back to shore. And in the morning, he went and he looked at his boat. And what he'd noticed was that instead of finishing the compass in the correct way, whoever put the compass on his boat finished it with a steel screw. And so it took that arrow that was supposed to point north, and it turned it right back towards that screw. The same things happened to us, you guys. We have an arrow in our life that was designed to point north, that was designed to point toward God, that we would love God and love others, that that would be what our life would be about. But we've all got this steel screw, it's called sin, steel screw in our lives that keeps moving the arrow back to us. And so when we get power, we prop ourselves up. When we have authority, we use it for our own benefit. And Jesus says, not so with my people. And you know what? This plays out in life. Jesus isn't just saying hypothetical niceties. Think about the people who have been the best leaders. They've been servants. The Martin Luther King Juniors of the world, they've been servants. The the Abraham Lincolns of our world, they've been servants. The Mother Teresas bending down and washing feet, the Corey Ten Booms, the people who have given their life, we go, oh man, they were not only the ones who lived lives of legacy, but they were live people who lived lives of blessing. There's a way that the world worked. And Jesus turns all of that on its head. I love the way that the author Andy Crouch put it when he said this. The most transformative acts in our lives are likely to be moments when we radically empty ourselves in the very settings that we would normally be expected to exercise authority. That there's this self-giving that leads to abundant blessing. Well, Jesus illustrates this for his disciples and for us because if you're maybe like I am, that we go, that's a great idea, in theory, but to actually live that out, how do, we, how do we do that? I'm really glad you asked that. I don't know what I would have talked about for the next few minutes if you hadn't, and so thank you. Here's how we live that out. Here's how Jesus lived that out, ver- chapter 13, starting in verse 4, verses 4 and 5. So he got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, Now, for Jesus and people back in the first century, they would have had a a tunic that was on the outside, and then maybe, depending on how wealthy they were, they would have had a really light shirt as like an underwear that they wore underneath. So Jesus takes off his tunic, and everybody who writes about this, or at least writes well about what's going on in the Gospel of John, says that what's going on at the foot washing is the same thing that's going on in chapter one, and Jesus is not just shedding a tunic, but he's shedding all of the things that he could hold on to in being God. And he takes it off so that he can bend down. 
Because when you have one of those big outer coats on like they had, getting down on your hands and knees in order to serve the people around you would be physically difficult. So he takes off his coat, and the king of the cosmos bends down, lays his glory, lays his majesty, lays his power aside. I mean, this is the same rabbi that just a few chapters earlier, a few days ago, the disciples had seen him walk up to his friend Lazarus' tomb and go, hey, Lazarus, I hate that you're dead, so why don't you be undead? Come on out. He's spit in the mud and he's wiped it in people's eyes and they've started to see. He's seen lame men walk, blind men see, sick people healed. And he takes off that coat. Because for Jesus, power isn't something you wield over people. It's something you use to prop people up. He takes it off because it would have gotten in the way from serving But if you and I are going to follow the Jesus way, the Jesus model, there's some things that we've got to release to. In the same way, in the same vein that Jesus did, we've we've got to release power and instead live in the way of vulnerability and humility. See, Jesus has, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes about living in the way of Jesus, and he says, in the same way, have the same attitude as Jesus, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others or value others as better than yourself. Anybody nailed that one yet? I mean, my goodness. I mean, just to be quite honest with you, as I'm preaching this, I envision myself sitting with you rather than telling you, man, I got this one. Rather, in humility, or literally lowliness of mind. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Having others in your view. That that's the attitude. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. That this is the, the attitude, but the, the action is vulnerability. It's taking off the outer garment so that you can see what's underneath. Because the outer garment prevents us from getting on our knees to serve. The outer garment prevents us from actually being able to love and to love well. This vulnerability is maybe summarized by one word, the potential for being wounded. Which is why we don't embrace it often. I mean, thanks to Brene Brown, and I mean that genuinely, vulnerability is on our radar screen now. Praise the Lord. That's a great thing. Vulnerability is a beautiful thing, and it's extremely difficult to live out. Because we've got some robes too, don't we? We have some robes, we have some outer garments, some things that we'd like to cinch up so that people can't see on the inside. Let me give you two that I see in my life and in the life of people that I walk closely with. One is the garment of pride. So I'll let you see my successes, but I will not let you see my shortcomings. And sometimes pride looks like a title. 
Sometimes pride looks like a position. Sometimes pride looks like a sarcastic, humorous, or maybe even condescending comment so that we can deflect somebody from getting into what's really going on in our life, right? That's just me. Sometimes pride might look like a a physical build or, or an ability to manipulate people to get them to do what you want or maybe even to say, I'm gonna withhold forgiveness so that I have this power that I can just wield over you. But when we have that robe on, there's no way we can get down and wash feet. Here's the other robe that we sometimes wear. We have the robe of pride and then we have the robe of pain. The, the robe that says, be vulnerable again, I was vulnerable once, and it bit me. I, I shedded that outer layer, and I let somebody in, and they abused that invitation. They took advantage of it. They took advantage of me. And that story, that truth, that thing that happened replays over and over and over again. And maybe even subconsciously our anthem is, I will not be vulnerable because I will not be hurt again. And listen, if that's you this morning, I just want to say one, I get it. I don't understand exactly where you've been, but, but I know that that's one of the things that we do. We cinch that coat up tight because we've been hurt. And, and more than I get it, God sees it. And he's asking, will you open up just a little bit? Because your inability to love well is actually preventing you from walking into the blessing I have for you. And see, if we're going to, friends, if we are going to live in this Jesus way, we've got to embrace the reality that what we continue to hide, God is not going to heal. And what we continue to hide is going to prevent us from actually being able to give and receive love because when we only wear the outer garment and we refuse to take it off, the only thing the people around us can love is the outer garment. They can't love you if they don't really know you. And you can't genuinely give love if you're not willing to genuinely be known. So the shame just keeps that robe on and it keeps it on tight. Here's the truth of the matter though. What I don't want you to hear me say is if you're walking in pride or if you're walking in pain, you just got to muscle up and shed that robe. That's not what Jesus would say. Here's the truth of the matter, friends. If we're going to do what Jesus did, we've got to know what Jesus knew. You can only do what Jesus did if you know what Jesus knew. So the question is, what did Jesus know? Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew his authority. Do you know yours? Because here's what the scriptures would say, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, that's Matthew chapter 28, and he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he's going, my authority is is your authority. Do you know that? Do you know that you can take a risk and make a difference because the King of kings and Lord of lords is with you and for you? But here's the second thing, he says, He knew that 
All power had been put under him, so he didn't, he knew his power, so he didn't need to prove it. Makes sense? When you don't really genuinely believe you have power, you've got to continually prove it to all the people around you. You know people like this? They always feel like they're on the bottom, so they got to one-up you, one-up you, one-up you, and you're like, this is laborious to be around you. If you don't know that guy, you might be that guy. Just saying. But here's the second thing Jesus says. He says, and that he'd come from God. First, authority. Second, identity. Jesus knows who he is. Do you know who you are? You are a son or daughter of the most high king, loved beautifully and perfectly by him. You have been made new by faith in Christ. That's who you are. It's the truest thing about you. And finally, he says this, and he was returning to God. Authority, identity, destiny. Jesus knew it all. He's going, listen, I can bend down and I can serve because death is a real thing, but it's not the most ultimate thing. And I know, I know what awaits me on the other side so I can serve. See, authority frees service, identity frees vulnerability, and destiny frees inconvenience. And washing feet is inconvenient. And listen to the way that Jesus goes on. He says this, and he came to Simon Peter. And anytime that happens in the scriptures, you should just sit back and wait. Because you just know it's going to be great. Because Simon Peter is what we all would be and do if we didn't have the inhibitions that the other disciples have. Okay? He just says what everybody's thinking. He jumps out of the boat, right? And he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Feet. You wonder if the other disciples were just like, oh gosh, it's sort of like watching a train wreck. Like, <laughs> just stop, like, time out. I mean, J- Peter has said some ridiculous things to Jesus, so much so that Jesus had said to him, get behind me, Satan, right? Like, and you wonder if the disciples, as they're walking down the road, are like, remember that one time he called you Satan? That was awesome, <laughs> amazing. This is another one of those times where they're just sitting back going, listen, if Messiah wants to wash your feet, I know it's going to be awkward, but just let him. Let him, right? Well, and then Peter, in his quintessential overreaction, says, verse 9, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Wash all of me. And Jesus answered, you moron. (laughs) Just kidding, that's me. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Uh, This phrase stood out to me, verse 10, and you are clean. Peter You've been washed new. It's a picture, most commentators would say, it's a picture of of salvation expressed in baptism, fully cleansed, fully covered, fully washed, made new. 
Totally. And will you look up at me for just a second? If you follow Jesus, you are clean. You're clean. That's the beautiful truth of the gospel. And Jesus is teaching that believers are not only saved by faith, but that they're invited to continue to walk by faith, to be purified day by day by day. And isn't it a beautiful thing that Jesus doesn't just wash us, save us, cleanse us, and then go, well, see you when you get to heaven. But it's the daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, walk with me. You're forgiven. Let me continue to forgive you. Let's do this together. Let's do this life together. He does not just save us and let us go. He washes us clean and then continues to serve us along the way. So the first thing we do is we release. We shed this outer garment that we often wear of pride and pain, knowing our authority, knowing our identity, knowing our destiny, we shed that so that we can actually get down and serve. And the second thing we do is we receive. That we receive lavish, ridiculous, reckless, messy love and grace. You want a verse that summarizes the gospel? Here it is, verse 8. Jesus saying to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's Jesus wooing you and I and Peter in by his love saying, I will not be your Lord if I am not first your servant. There is no other picture of a deity in any world religion that would suggest such absolute insanity. I will not be your Lord if I cannot first be your servant. So picture it. You're sitting around this table and the king of the world who's just risen somebody from the grave comes to you. Bows in front of you, takes up a water basin and starts to wash your feet. If you've ever been a part of a foot washing service, here's what you know. You know that it's a lot easier to wash somebody else's feet than it is to get your feet washed. It's a lot easier to extend grace sometimes than it is to receive it. In the mid-1850s, an artist by the name of Ford Maddox Brown painted a picture of Jesus washing Peter's feet. He painted Jesus at first wearing, um, having no robe on, like the scriptures would say. Um, the painting wouldn't sell with Jesus looking like that. He was too scantily clad, they said. So he put a robe on him, a green robe, and eventually the painting sold. But it's a fascinating picture of Peter, isn't it? With his head down, almost can't make eye contact with Jesus because it's just so awkward to have the ruler of it all, bend down and wash your feet. And Jesus, look at the way that his hands are around Peter's foot. I picture a teenage mom grabbing her boy's face and planting a big kiss on it, as if to say, you will kiss me whether you like it or not. <laughs> Jesus is like, we're doing this, and I ain't letting go. 
And all the people in the background look around in awe, in terror, thinking, my time's coming next. It's this picture of grace, this picture of of mercy that you and I often resist. Jesus saying, I will not be your Lord if I cannot first be your servant. See, the truth of the matter is, friends, we resist it on two fronts. Some of us, we think that we just don't need it. You're not washing my feet. Absolutely not. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. If you miss grace, you missed God entirely. That's what he's saying. Forgiveness is the foundation that every life of faith is built on. You can't skip this part and jump to something else. This is something we all must first receive. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, bowing down to wash our feet. Unneeding? No, none of us is beyond the grace of God. Nobody in this place. But here's the second thing that happens. Like Peter, like the other disciples, we go, well, Jesus, I'm I'm not unneeding. I'm undeserving. And so many of us have this narrative of God, like he's just waiting for us to earn what he wants to freely give us. The picture is one of grace, friends. So, if you're struggling with being undeserving, let me assure you, you are. Let me assure you, we are. Every last one of us. Look up at me for a moment. You are perfectly loved, but you are not loved because you are perfect. You are loved to the uttermost, not because you're amazing, but because your God is awesome. So he looks at us in our undeserving and sometimes thinking that we're unneeding, and he comes up and he grabs our foot and says, you're going to do this, we're going to do this, or you don't have any part of me. As if to say, when you let me be your servant, you get a part of me. So we release, and then we receive the lavish love that the Father has poured down on us. And then Jesus ends his picture, his parable like this. Verse 12. And when he'd finished washing their feet, and they took a deep breath and said, my goodness, I can't believe that happened, and I'm so glad that that's now over. He put on his clothes, and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord And rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, your your rabbi, have washed your feet, you also should wash the feet of one another. So look around. Just just look up from your Bible for just a second and just just look around. These are people that were called to wash the feet of. Do this for each other. 
I've set you an example, verse 15, that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master and no messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Teacher and Lord, living in his way, living in his rhythms. But can we just be honest? Sometimes being a foot washer is really inconvenient. I was driving with my kids in the car the other day, and um, my daughter Avery is having some trouble with this boy at school that sort of picks on her a little bit, and, and it mostly happens before school, and my older son Ethan knows this, and they're both there before school, and he says to her in the car, Avery, I was going to come stand up for you on Friday, but I had to go see about a candy gram. <laughs> like, I was going to come to your rescue, but... There was candy involved. I know you'd understand. And then he follows it up with, I was going to get you a candy gram too, but I had to get one for Cooper and Fletcher before that. So I ran out of money. And she's like, oh, that's cool, Ethan. Thanks for thinking of me, buddy. I don't know. And can we just say, kids are just more honest. We do the same thing too. Oh, I was going to serve you, but I got a better offer. Something came up. We, we cloak that, but we say the same thing. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I have sent you. We release power, embrace vulnerability. We receive lavish love and grace, and we respond with extravagant forgiveness. In a selfie culture, God is calling us to be selfless Christians. So look up at me for a second. I've said this to you before, and, and, and I'm saying it again to us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not, I'm so glad that you're here. You get to see the Jesus way, the Jesus way to blessing, the Jesus way to life. But this, this is, you're not required to do this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are. You don't get to decide who you love if you're a follower of Jesus. You get to decide how you love, but not who. You are called to love every single person that you meet. The people that can't reciprocate it, you're called to love them. The people that won't reciprocate it, you're called to love them. The people that have hurt you, you're called to love them. The people who believe differently than you and have a different lifestyle than you, you don't get to decide if you love, you only get to decide how. The people of a different faith, I mean, Jesus is bending down to wash Judas's feet. Friends, what if, what if, what if followers of Jesus started to actually live in the way of Jesus? Do you know how much pain and war and violence and hurt in our world would be healed if our posture was, I know we disagree on a lot of stuff, but I want to listen. And I want to learn where you're coming from. And I want to hear you out. And I want to serve you. And I want to wash your feet. That takes a confidence in our authority, our identity, and our destiny that most of us just don't really have. But Jesus is inviting us to embrace it, to serve in his way. I read this story about um, Pope Francis, who in, on Holy Week in 19, uh, 2016, he washed the feet of 12 Muslim and Hindu immigrants No strings attached. Just living in the way of Jesus. But what if, what if somebody can't reciprocate it? I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, love is never wasted. 
for its value does not depend on reciprocity. So how might we practice this way together this week, friends? See, because biblical compassion does not say we're just content with whoever's around our table. It's continuing to pursue, to continue to build bridges, continue to love people who are very different and other, quote-unquote, than we are. This is his way. This is his calling for you and for me. And he says that it'll change the world if we live that way. It'll change you. And if you read verse 13, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we what? Love. By the way that we love. So what might you do this week if you want to practice this? What if you volunteer? We have family promise coming this week. You volunteer there. There's opportunities in our food bank to serve. I had a friend let me know that, that right now there's about 40 kids in the foster care system in our area who need homes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just can't imagine what it would be like to be a little kid without a place to call home. And I don't say that to guilt you or shame you. I'm just going, man, we got to enter in with them. How do we do this? What if you just, as a random act of kindness, bought somebody coffee who was behind you in line? Or sent somebody an encouraging note, or watched someone's kids, or listened to somebody who you disagreed with? I know, it's crazy, but it's possible. I mean, I just want to say, South Fellowship, you you guys, you do this so well. You do this so well. And I want to say, let's, let's listen to the Spirit as he pulls us forward to say, let's hold our lives open to Jesus, to say, Jesus, you, you, it's all yours. You speak into it. You tell me what you want me to do and how you want me to love, and, and I'm going to do my best to follow you. I believe that there's blessing there. There's some things in me that stand in the way, and I want to receive from you in a way that I can shed my robes. And I want to receive love from you in a way that allows me to stand firm. And I want to respond to live in your way. Uh, just a huge shout out to the, to the parents, to the moms who do this, to the grandparents who do this, to the single parents who do this. Oh my gosh, you think no one sees. I just want to affirm to you that your God knows the way that you love, the way that you serve. And you're a picture of what he's done for you. See, friends, the reality is that a life of service leads to a legacy of influence. Jesus says that the greatest, you want to be great? Wonderful. He's not down on greatness. He wants to tell you how to get there. The greatest among you will be your servant. So let's live in this way. I'm going to invite you as we're singing one last song, we're going to sing Reckless Love. It's a picture of a foot washing God coming after you. And what I'd like to invite you to do during this last song is we have these stained glass windows up here. And I want to invite you to just come and to maybe write one word. Maybe it's a name. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody who's driving you crazy at work. And you're going to serve them this week. But I want you to come and write down, here's how I want to do this. Here's how I want to live this out this week. Come and write it down on these stained glass windows. And our prayer is that the light of Jesus would shine through us saying, This is how we want to live. 
that the world might know that he's good and that he's God. So during this last song, I'd invite you to come up and there's pens, pens at each of these stations. Come and write down something, a way that you're going to practice this this week. Jesus, we love you. And we want our, our lives are open to you. Would you bring something to mind? Would you bring a person to mind? A way that you want us to love sacrificially the people around us. We believe that there's blessing in living in your way, and we want it. Lord, we're following you. Amen.